Move us as we come to worship in your presence towards greater Christ-likeness in every way, even, Father, that it comes through the pain of repentance. That pain leads us to a joyful celebration of your love for us as the sons and daughters. We celebrate this morning as your beloved children and sing in like manner.
James chapter 5, starting in verse 18. So it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Our exercises in confessing our sins to one another is that as you participate, you are also confessing them to one another. Your brother and sister down the road, you're confessing them to his So please join me and let us confess our sins to Almighty God. Holy God, Father most gracious, rebuke us not in your anger, nor chasten us in your wrath. Heal us from our sin, for we are troubled. Deliver us for the sake of your steadfast love. Our sins trouble us, O God. We are troubled by how they have hurt others. We are troubled by how they have hurt us. Your ways are right, O righteous God. And whenever we have refused to follow them, we have found out how right they are. Have mercy on us, O God. Please take a moment to silently confess your sins to the Lord. We live in a time when mercy is scarce. Whether you've received the vaccine or not, you don't get a lot of mercy from the other side. 
Republican or Democrat, you don't get a lot of mercy from the other side. You don't get a lot of mercy if you're an OSU fan ever. Mercy's just scarce, but that's not who our God is. Hear this assurance of pardon. God pardons those who humbly repent and truly believe the gospel. Since Jesus died for us, we have peace with God, to whom be praise honor forever. Amen. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, know that you were forgiven and be at peace. Thanks be to God.
reading this morning comes from the book of Acts, 18, 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be, your, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm going to ask us to do something before we sing the next song. And for us Presbyterians, it can be a little weird. But I would like us to talk and say something. But before we sing this next song, um, we're going to play over you for just a few seconds. And I want you to think about something that God has been faithful in in the last week or month or whatever. In the chaos of the frenetic realities of life right now for all of us, if you're like me, it's really difficult to see anything good happening because all we're hearing and being inundated with negative things and hurtful things. And so what I would like you to do is think of that thing, and then when you think of it, communicate it to somebody next to you. What is that thing? So that means I'm going to have to hear you say something, and then when no one's talking anymore, we'll continue to sing.
Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hands have provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Amen. You may be seated. As I pray for us this morning, I'm going to invite you to close with me in prayer by saying together the prayer that the Lord taught us to pray. But first, let's go before our Father in prayer together. Father, we thank you that your steadfast love never ceases, and your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Father, thank you for how you've been faithful to this church and to our families amidst the throes of the challenges of our day. You have helped men and women in our church transition from one job to another. You have helped moms and dads shepherd their children through difficult issues that caused confusion in their hearts. You have led college students to walk in faith as they share the hope, the reason for the hope they profess with others in their dorm or in their house, seeing how calm and at peace they are through all the challenges of being a college student these days. You have caused our teenagers, Father, to look and see that you are faithful to your church, that we gather to worship in your name because it's not about us, it's about you. And we are turning them to look beyond us to the glories of the gospel so that they will know who they are in Christ and they will be able to own their faith as they grow older. Father, you've been with children even today as they enter back into Sunday school. And Lord, thank you for the faithfulness of all of those who have taught our kiddos this very morning. You've encouraged our hearts through Pastor Scott and Coffeeology. Thank you, Father, for his teaching gifts and the blessing that he is to us. Great is your faithfulness, Father. And we stand today yet again in your presence, and we look to you, and you, we say, Father, would you contour us more and more into your image? Would you show us the blind spots we have in our hearts? Would you help us, Lord, to walk in holiness in areas of our life that we may not yet know to give fully over to you? Father, for those in our congregation who are struggling with sexual addiction, I pray, Lord, that you would break the bonds of that addiction by giving them a greater affection to walk in newness of life. For those who are walking in addictions to drugs and alcohol, Lord, I pray that you would give them a new affection. You'd give them the counsel and the care of others around them to help strengthen them in that journey and that pathway. You help us as a church, Lord, to not assume that our church is going to be whitewashed clean, that we're going to be messy people, that we are radically diverse, and that we desperately need each other. And so, Lord, help us, even as we hear each other's voice, pray together. The, Lord, the prayer that you taught us to pray, 
Lord, help us to recognize the role of the community in shaping our lives. Interdependence, not independence or codependence. Lord, may we be that kind of church. For those at home, Father, would you bless them as they watch online, wherever they are. And I pray, Father, that you would help our church to maintain unity together in the bond of peace. And so, Father, we pray together the words that your son taught us to pray, praying. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's astounding when you look at a church that's our size, how many volunteers it actually takes for us to, to, do, to do ministry together every week. And so I just wanted to acknowledge all of those who help make uh, Trinity Kids possible today. Many of them are back there right now doing the thing that they do. But if you helped with Trinity Kids in some way, shape this morning, would you just stand and let us say thank you to you. It's a big deal to open up an aspect of programming in our church that we haven't seen in a while. If you're involved in Trinity Kids, not just this week, but if you're involved at any point in time, would you just stand up? Would you join me in giving them a round of applause to say thank you so much for their service to our church? Thank you. Thank you. If, if you've ever driven a truck to Trinity to help, you guys can be seated. If you've ever driven a truck to Trinity to, to set up, would you stand up and so we can just say thank you to you? Ever driven a truck to worship Pulling one of these big trailers. Thank you very much. If you teach, if you teach our youth or you, you, you shepherd our, our young people, would you stand up so we can just say thanks to you? Some of you are in here. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Thank you. If you pick up coffee to bring coffee to us, are they in here? Yeah, I see them in here. Yeah. Would you stand up and let us say thank you? All right. Thank you. Yeah, there she is. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Yeah. All right. All right, I could go down the row, every single one of us, right? Like, I could, I could look at the Webbers and say, thank you guys for helping lead us in worship. I could look at Tim and Susan, who, who helped us greet this morning. I could look at Kyle and Chris, who, who helped us with bulletins this morning. I could go on and on down the row. I could look at Addison and say, thank you for helping play the drums for us, brother. It's so helpful and meaningful to us. I could go, Preston, for jumping in today. Like, I could go down the row. Stacy for sending flowers to people throughout the course of the week, whenever condolences or congratulations are in order. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. We're all in this together. And I hope that the longer that we worship together, that you own the vision of this church. This is not like the elders' vision only. It's yours. We want you to own it, and we want you to be able to, to use your gifts. And so I just wanted to say thank you very much, Trinity, for your goodness and your ability to jump in and serve your gifts. Use your gifts and service. It's a big deal. You do the work of ministry, we equip you to do that ministry. And so thank you, thank you, thank you for your heart for ministry. Now in the passing of the peace, as I've often said in worship, it's a time in the history of the church where people move toward each other, reconciled with those they need to reconcile with, so that we can maintain unity in the bond of peace. And so this morning, as we pass the peace, please say hi, be sensitive to those who may not want the hugs this morning because of the rise of the Delta variant, but please do greet each other in an appropriate way. And if you need to confess to your brother or sister, please take advantage of this time to do that.
as well. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace of the Lord be with you always. And also with you. Let's stand and greet each other in the name of the Lord. And please be sure to fill out those connect cards and drop them in the baskets or the boxes. Thank you. All right, if you have a Bible, please find it and open with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians comes after Romans, before 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was the second letter to the Corinthians that Paul writes, as we'll learn as we go through this book together. 1 Corinthians is an astoundingly practical book that has one central purpose. That is to teach the church how to apply the gospel in every part of life. And we're going to go through this book verse by verse by verse in the coming months. But today, we're going to give you an overview of the book of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to give you some hooks to be able to identify as we go through this book in the months to come. So that you can stay oriented to where we are. This is kind of like a map of the book that will help us. Stay oriented as we move through it together. If you're willing and able, let's stand together. I'm going to read just a very small portion of 1 Corinthians, verses 1 to 9, chapter 1. And then in chapter 16, I'll read verses 13 and 14. This is the very word of God. Paul. Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints together. With all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then in chapter 16, verses 13 
14. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please, why study 1 Corinthians? We're just going to jump in. Grab a pen. Here we go. Four reasons to study the book of 1 Corinthians. Number one, 1 Corinthians teaches us how to apply the gospel. Some of you may know that last year my father had open heart surgery. He had to have a valve replaced in his heart. And if you know anything about cardiac surgeons, you know that they require enormous skill to open up somebody's chest and to replace valves in their heart. I mean, their education level is through the roof. They went to high school. They went to college. They graduated from college. They spent four more years in med medical school. They got out of medical school. They entered into a general surgeon surgery residency, probably for three years or so. Then they went on to a cardiac surgery residency, another three years. And so by the time that they get out and they're able to do heart surgeries, they're like 85. You don't meet very many young cardiac surgeons. And when they're doing their surgery residencies, and some of you who've been through those residencies know, there, there's didactic portions of those residencies where you're learning, you're taking notes, you're learning. There's, there's, there's conferences where you're interacting together, and there's simulation where you're practicing. And you do this again and again and again and again. And much like cardiac surgery and residency in that program, so also the church wants to equip you with teaching, yes, with conferences, yes, we interact together. Some of that you saw this morning in AM Discipleship. And also in simulation, where in community groups you learn how to apply the gospel to particular areas in your life to which scripture may not directly teach, but gives you the principles of how to lead a life in honor of the king amidst the messiness of our everyday living. And in 1 Corinthians, you see that we therefore not only need to know the gospel, much like surgeons need to know the gospel as they did before they operated on my dad, but we have to have lots of simulated experience in order to be able ever so slightly to think on our feet in the operating room, in the moment, so that we can apply the gospel with a propulsion of grace and law to the glory of Jesus in that particular moment. Within fixed principles, the ability to think on your feet brings healing results, and it saves lives. So, Corinth was a very large international metropolis. It was filled with people from different backgrounds, Jews and Greeks. Paul spent 18 months there, as Nathan read for us in Acts chapter 18. You can read more about the background in Acts chapter 18 if you're curious. And the church he had founded there had already developed deep divisions. And Paul received a letter from Chloe when he was in Ephesus saying, Paul, this church that you planted and then set up with leaders has gone into all kinds of crazy divisions. And so she addressed some of these things that you see in the graphic behind me. She addressed 
unity. He addressed unity. He addressed issues of the physical body. He addressed issues of food. He addressed issues of what do you do in public worship? How does that work? He addressed doctrines like the resurrection. So I encourage you to use this graphic as we go through Corinth or Corinthians to think about where we are in the book. Because essentially Paul says, I'm teaching you, Corinth, again, how do you apply the gospel? You have been sanctified together, he says in the very beginning of the book. So act like it. And so when you look at examples of how Paul does this, you see a pattern for how Paul begins to apply the gospel in each of these areas. And I just want to, to help simulate this for you just for a few minutes and give you these examples. When you look at how Paul addresses issues of division in the church, for example, or issues of the physical body, or issues of food, or issues of worship, or issues of doctrine and with the resurrection in particularly uh, focused upon, there's a pattern that develops, and this is Paul's pattern. Paul, number one, always defines the problem by identifying the sin that is beneath Chloe's concern. The sin beneath the sin. So he doesn't say division is bad. He says, why is division bad? And what is your underlying motivation for why you're divided? What are you longing for? And then number two, after Paul identifies the underlying motivation, in each of these instances, as we'll look, Paul then identifies an aspect of the gospel that more deeply satisfies that underlying motivation. So he shows the sin beneath the sin. He reveals an aspect of the gospel that meets the deeper need. And thirdly, he calls them to repentance and faith in the way of Jesus in order to live in light of his greater love. So there's two sections on your notes, but really there's three principles. Number one, the sin beneath the sin. Number two, the aspect of the gospel that is more deeply satisfying. And three, he calls them to live in light of Jesus's greater love. He does this again and again and again. And if we as a church are able to use these kinds of principles as we try to apply the gospel to various issues in our life, we'll be able to think on our feet and respond with grace and truth. Are you with me? Let's look at some examples. First, divisions. In chapter 1 to 4, he addresses the groupings. There were some Apollos groupies. There were some Paul groupies. And, and Paul says, what you long for is an identity with some smaller group of people with whom you can somehow pursue power. And Paul says to them, are you kidding me? Like, this is not a popularity contest, Corinth. It's not about your power. That's what the Jews sought. It's not about your wisdom. That's what the Greeks went for. It's not about any leader. Humanly speaking, it's about Jesus. And you may prefer one pastor or one leader over the other, but the focus is to be on Jesus. He's the one that provides you with the greater power, gives you a righteousness that's not your own, and greater wisdom, because Jesus himself is the wisdom 
of God. For example, he says to them, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. I mean, he gets under the underlying pursuit of power and of wisdom, and he says, the gospel gives you that. Don't live lies. Or physical body decisions. Corinth was, it was, it, it was a mess. There was a man in the church who was sleeping with his mother-in-law, and his stepmother. There were others who were going to temple prostitutes. And they said, hey, Paul, you taught us that we are free in Christ. And Paul's response is, yes, you are free to be a person of integrity because the gospel has made you whole, bro. Jesus died for your sins, including sexual sin. And these broken relationships are due to your sexual misconduct. And if you're, if you're a Christian, integrity is one of the ways that we respond in faith to Jesus' love and grace. If Jesus was physically raised from the dead, then we too should care about our physical body. And he has given you good places within the confines of marriage to demonstrate that. So enjoy your marriages. Be satisfied within the confines of your marriage sexually, but not outside the bounds of those. And so notice that what Paul says is, on the one hand, Paul didn't say, I cannot believe you sin in that way. That's disgusting. I'm not even going to talk about it. I can't even imagine associating with you people. No, he gets into the mess of it, and he says, on the one hand, sex is good. It's to be enjoyed. It's a gift of God. And on the other hand, it's like playing with fire. You've got to keep it in the fireplace. Because of what Christ has done for us and the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead, our physical bodies matter. So value them more than you do. Your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Or let's look at the case of food. In chapters 8 to 10, some people preferred uh, uh, certain foods over the others. I don't mean some preferred green beans and other people preferred squash. I mean that there were Jews who were saying to Gentiles, you cannot eat the meat that is bought from the market after it's sacrificed to idols. You can't eat that meat. And others were saying, well, why not? I mean, it's just, it's just meat. It's just meat. Eat it. And so Paul steps in and he says, let's think about this in light of the gospel. If you're in a situation where there is meat that's been dedicated to another god, and there are people around you who say, look, you can worship Jesus and other gods too. There's a kind of syncretism in their belief structure. And they're around you. Your loyalty should always be to Jesus. And you should love those other people more than yourself. And not mislead them. However, as Christians, we believe God created all things, including the animals. And the temple idols that we believe... Uh, uh, aren't really idols at all they're no gods at all they're just they're just wood and stone and they're there if, if, if there's no people who are around you who are going to misunderstand you well then eat up but notice paul doesn't give easy black or white answers he goes in with these principles of the gospel and he says you have to recognize who the people are around you and the principle that has to be at play in all of your decision making is is this most loving for the unity of the church, 
and for the good of your brothers and sisters around you. So if you have somebody, for example, who has an alcohol problem and they come to a, a community group and you have lots of, you, you, you decide to have alcohol, well, like, you should check yourself and be careful. Like, maybe that's not a good place to have alcohol available for the sake of a brother who may be tempted in that way or a sister. Or let's say that you're, you're, you're um, I don't know, you're, you're, out, um, you're out shopping together and, and you, you have the ability to buy really nice clothes and you have somebody who just longs to be like the Joneses and they just cannot stand the fact that they can't have certain material things and you just, you know, wave it in their face that they have it. Well, it, be, move in love. Overwhelm them with hospitality, care, and love, and graciousness toward them. You can add this ad infinitum. But think about the way that you behave that motivates your other brother and sister to see the beauty and glory of God. Motivated by love. Or uh, chapters 11 through 14, problems in gathered worship. People are having very powerful moving emotional experiences in worship. They would start praying in unknown languages. And there were people who would start sharing a teaching and another person would stand up and he would interrupt them or she would interrupt them. And it was really distracting, especially to those who were new. And so Paul's response is, don't just, don't go home. Come together, keep coming together. The gatherings are a place where God's presence exists by his Holy Spirit, as he works through everybody in that room. And it should happen in a unified and orderly way. So he develops a metaphor. He thinks on his feet and develops a metaphor of the human body. And he says the body is one, but it has many different parts. And each part does something unique to benefit the whole. So also in gathered worship. The Spirit does all these things through you. And he's building you up into the body, into the church. The highest value needs to be the gospel and the unity of worshiping Jesus, not, not just an emotional experience for those of you, although Paul says emotional experiences are great. I'm all for emotional experiences, but not at the expense of a brother and sister around you who's utterly distracted so that he's not able to commune with God very easily. Let love compel each person in gathered worship to serve and seek the well-being of others. And so Paul applies all of these dynamics to these different situations of division and of decisions about uh, the physical body and about food and about gathered worship and then about the resurrection. People were saying in chapter 15 that the resurrection doesn't really matter and Paul just comes unhinged. And he says, the resurrection is an indefensible part of the gospel. It has to be there. And we believe it because we saw Jesus risen from the dead together with hundreds of other people. Plus, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then his death is like utterly meaningless. And we of all people ought to be pitied. No, don't run from doctrine. Run toward it because it gives you the safeguards for your hope, even amidst your doubts. Lean into this beautiful doctrine because it shapes the way you live. And by the way, it also shapes the way you view the body. It also shapes the way you choose your food. It also shapes the way that you're unified together because you, church, Paul says, are a visible picture of Christ's body in the world. One part, many members, demonstrating the powerful truth of his resurrection. So, 
the first thing we learn about Corinthians, the reason to study it is because we learn how to apply the gospel in all parts of life. I've given you several of those examples throughout the course of the book. That's the second reason. Number two, it covers relevant issues. Of course, all scripture is relevant, but 1 Corinthians is particularly complex, and as we get into it, you'll see what I mean. The problem with 1 Corinthians is like it's, it's like we're on a telephone call and we can only hear one side of the conversation. We don't know exactly what the questions were that they asked. We just hear Paul's response to it. And you'll find that as Paul is responding to them, he covers issues that may surprise you. Like he talks about gender identity in chapter 11 when he talks about head coverings. He talks about all these issues in 1 Corinthians that are crucial, important, even to the life of the modern church, because, of course, he's dealing with humans, and there's nothing new under the sun. And after finishing 1 Corinthians, you'll look back with astonishment at the relevance of the book for Trinity. You'll see issues of how we can defend ourselves against division, how we can fight for sexual integrity as a church, how we can be kind to each other amidst issues of adiaphoria. That's a Greek word that means matters of indifference, like Mask, no mask. Uh, uh, should we get? Should we? Should we do this or that with the COVID? Should we? Should we do this or that when it comes to this cultural issue? How do we take those issues and put them in the heart of the gospel and say, what does the gospel teach us to do? And where, therefore, are the boundaries for us as Christians? It gets messy. And you're going to hear churches. And you're going to hear people who just say, just do this one thing, and that may be true when God's word speaks directly to an issue. And we should believe God's word and walk in faith, no matter how much the culture reviles us for it. But we, got, we have to have the principles to know how to do it well. I'll, I'll, I'll give you, a, um, I'll give you a, an example. Like this week in our family, one of our children is in a class with his teachers, and he loves to work ahead. It's a great quality. I wish he got that from dad. He didn't. He loves to work ahead. And, he's, and he went to this class. And his teacher, bless her heart, has a very rigid way that she wants this class taught. And she wanted the students in the class to color certain pages according to a schedule. Because her program has worked for 50 years in learning music this way. And, and our, our, our precious child decided he wanted to work ahead. So he worked ahead. And she saw that he worked ahead. And Lauren is there at this class with, with, with him, and, and, and she sees that he's working ahead, and she goes, don't do that. Don't work ahead. And whoa, whoa. And, you know, you guys know how sweet my wife is. Man, it's fun to see her come unglued. And she responded with like a propulsion of grace toward our child. And she looked, at, she looked at the teacher and she said, oh, that's my fault, not his. Because the heart of my child is to love music. And I gave him permission to work as far ahead as he wanted to. That is, that's on me, not on him. And, and she defended him in front, of, in front of his teacher. And she was trying to think about the gospel way to address this. And she knew that it couldn't just be all grace because she knew that this teacher in that case actually overstepped her bounds. And so <laughs> in the loving way that only my wife can do, she went up to the teacher and she said, you missed the heart of the child in that moment. You missed his heart. And next time, put a little sugar on it. <laughs> 
But that's like, she's trying to apply the gospel to shepherd our child in the midst of a, of a, of a situation that was uncomfortable and, and yet help her, this teacher, see how to teach the heart of a child and not just rigidly conform them to a program when, when what they did wasn't morally wrong, although she made them feel like it. All right, number three. Corinthians shows us the way to value and maintain unity in a divisive world. This, this is relatively, it doesn't need to be elaborated on, except I'll just say this. Once we preach 1 Corinthians, like it will shape us into the church that you want and the church that you need, right? We'll be a gospel-centered, cross-focused, Bible-drenched, grace-laden community of believers who delight to live out their gifts in community. We'll have our children understanding how to apply these principles in their school. We'll be thinking about how it helps us day to day. Our attendance is going to flourish and community groups are just going to grow. It's going to be amazing. It'll automatically happen, right? Yeah, right. No. But it lays the groundwork for it. And 1 Corinthians is a frontal assault on things that tear churches apart. And we need to know them. Because beginning in 1950, the church has declined. It's been declining for 70 years. started with the mainline church. And now you look around and you wonder where people are in society. Well, I can tell you where they are. They're about four miles down the road to the Patriot right now having brunch, a lot of them. They're about... 13 miles south at Southern Hills having brunch. They're at Meadowbrook. They're, they're, they're enjoying, you know, blueberry pancakes right now because they don't see the benefit of the church. And you are the, you are the reason to live out the salt and light as the exiles and as the ones who are, are giving your lives to Christ. And you are showing that the church is this magnificent vehicle through which the, church, the world is changed because you are equipped with the ability to navigate difficult issues with truth and grace and love. By the power of the Holy Spirit. So number one, it helps us learn how to apply the gospel. Number two, it covers relevant issues. Number three, it shows us the value and how to maintain unity in a divisive world. And number four, it lays the foundation for a healthy church in both biblical doctrine and pastoral affection. The foundation of a healthy church is given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul gives us a clear understanding of biblical conversion. In chapter 5, we see the principles of church discipline. In chapter 14, we see how the whole church speaks together of Jesus through using their gifts. Throughout the book, we see the need and the practice of church membership and of covenant faithfulness together to hold each other accountable. And I love how Paul deals with these struggling saints. I mean, they were a mess. His pride and joy at this key international city, this urban area. And at the very beginning, Paul thanks them for the grace that has been given to them. He says, you are being sanctified together before Jesus Christ. I mean, you've got, you got rampant sexual sin in the church. You've got division. You've got issues. And they're bickering over food. They're divided in worship. And, God, and Paul says, but you're being sanctified. He gives thanks for them. Why? Because he sees that progress, not victory, is the mark of a healthy church. In the middle of the letter, full of their many sins, they're snobbish, divisive. They took each other to court. They sued each other. They even rejected... Paul himself, 
And given all of that, the very end of the book, Paul doesn't just say, buck up. He says, and now I'm going to um, dust myself off. No, Paul says, may my love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. Paul loved these struggling saints with the gospel and with this amazing propulsion of grace to push them in their gifts be used for God's glory. So how is the Lord going to challenge you through the course of this book? Would you pray that the Lord will begin to open your heart to learn how to apply the gospel in very difficult areas of your life right now? Some of you are struggling with pornography. What does the gospel have to say about that? How do you fight it? Some of you are struggling with intra-family relationships. Very difficult ones. How does the gospel lead you to both communicate truth, but also do so with grace, taking the long view to win that relationship over time? What do you do when you have a brother or sister who, who commits a, 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 a sin or a behavior that, that embarrasses you? How do you respond to them in grace and not just let the judgment upon other people shape you or cause you to just hammer them with the law? How do you respond to them with love and grace and truth to maximize the relationship? The gospel, that's what the gospel does. And it's not always easy. But 1 Corinthians helps us to do that. And I encourage you before we come to the Lord's table today to think about the areas of your life, the parts of your life that you are scared to yield over to King Jesus. To allow our time in this book and simulating how the gospel spoke to issues of sexual behavior, of church unity, of food, of worship, and of doctrine, to challenge you to begin to yield that area of your life more and more and more to him. So I'm going to give us about 60 seconds before I pray for us, and I fence the table, for you to just ask the Lord, Lord, would you show me an area of my life where you want me to apply the gospel and to lean in to my identity in you. Would you take just a moment to do that? Where would the Holy Spirit want to do his work in you? Father, as we look at this book together over the coming months, we pray you would help us to see that the gospel is not mere advice or a mere self-growth plan or behavior modification, but it is an announcement about Jesus that opens up to us an entirely new reality. Help us to step into it. Lord, would you help our children who don't yet believe the gospel to come to the table in faith and believe? Would you help those adults, Lord, who have heard the gospel for many years but never realized how beautiful and practical it is to see that the gospel is full
far more beautiful and believable than they could have ever imagined. Jesus, would you draw near to them? For those with doubts, Lord, would you get your arms around them and would you whisper to them that they are your beloved son, daughter, that you're proud of them, you love them, you care for them, you're with them. Would you help me, any area of my life that's not yielded to you, Father, would you start with me? Help me to walk in obedience, applying the gospel to that area of my life, whatever the cost. May that be true of each of us, we pray in Jesus' name. The night that Jesus was betrayed in the upper room, he had a meal with his disciples, and at that meal, he took bread, and he broke it, and he said, take and eat, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, after supper, Jesus took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, drink of it all of you for the remission of your sins, because as often as you do eat of this bread, and you do drink of this cup, you show forth the Lord's death until he comes again. Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. Hallelujah. The gifts of God for the people of God who are being renewed into his image, even ever so slowly, but surely to make us like him, ultimately in glory, now in part. So may you rest in Jesus' work for you. Relying on what he has done to be your identity and your righteousness, which is given to you by faith. This table is not the trinity of this local church or of any particular denomination. This is the Lord's table. So if you're a member in good standing in a church where the gospel is preached and you trust in Christ, then we invite you to run to this table. There'll be four stations, two in the front, and there'll be two in the back. And after I pray for us, and as the elders make their way to these tables, they will have on masks, and they will have on gloves, and they will serve you. They will serve you the bread. They will hand that bread to you. And so if you would just reach your hands out, if you want to receive them like this, that will let them know that they should hand you the bread. If you need a gluten-free option, then in the plastic ramekin, you can reach in and grab a gluten-free way for yourself. Then they'll come back around and serve you the, the, the wine. The red is wine, and the white is grape juice. Come to the table. Your Savior loves you and he wants to greet, meet, love, remind you of the truth and the power of his gospel. And move out from there in love and in hope as God's cruciform, cross-shaped community. Let's pray together. Father, would you now, we pray, nurture us, shape us, mold us by your Holy Spirit to become more and more like you. Father, would you remind us that you're here and you're present. Thank you for your presence among us. Strengthen us through these means of grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks unto our Lord God. It is right and good and a joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks unto you, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty everlasting God, and therefore with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and singing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him all 
when you're ready, you come.
this morning as we close.
A few announcements before we depart. On the back table there as you leave, nice black uh, table is some community group sign-up forms. Feel free, if you're interested in being a part of a community group, many of them are kicking off this week or have just kicked off. So I'd encourage you to do that, and I'll be in touch with you to try to help you find which one would be the best for you, for your family. And then second, uh, after worship, starting at noon, there's a men's lunch. If you're interested in planning and looking at the future of men's ministry at Trinity, we highly encourage you uh, to be a part of that. It's at Trinity House on Garnett, across from Hobby Lobby. And then third, just remember, our 9 a.m. classes, kids, youth, adults, they're in full effect. We'd love to see you next week. So now receive this good word from Romans 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let us go forth to serve our neighbors in the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Go in peace.